You're listening to KCRW Berlin, and I'm senior producer Dina El Sayed. Tomorrow is election day in the United States, when American voters will pick their next president. A record number of mail-in ballots already makes this an election like no other in U.S. history. To review what's at stake, stay tuned to this episode of Common Ground we first aired last month. This is Common Ground, KCRW Berlin's new talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today's topic is one that has many of us holding our breath. KCRW Berlin's Dina El Sayed explains. What many people feel about the upcoming U.S. presidential election can be described in one word. Fear. Some worry there won't be a peaceful transition of power following the vote next month. Others wonder whether democracy and civil rights in the United States will radically change with a new Supreme Court. There is also a lot of anxiety over U.S. foreign policy, and the tone of the recent presidential debate in Cleveland only added to global uncertainty. Will you shut who is up, on, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so right. Gentlemen, is, I think this is so Fox right. News moderator Chris Wallace quickly lost control of the conversation. So the, the, wait a minute, you get the final word, Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. Excuse me. Neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump hid their disdain for one another. You were a senator. And You're the, the worst way, president vice... America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Let me, let me just tell you, Joe, I've done more in, in 47 months. I've done more than you've done in 47 years, Joe. So how is the U.S. presidential election being viewed abroad? People are extremely motivated. That's Bowen Shah of Democrats Abroad in Berlin. There's a lot of people who are uh, coming out of the woodwork, people who have uh, been living in Berlin or living in Germany for a while, but hadn't really been interested or been connected to the political um, things that are going on uh, in the U.S. And we're here to help them, and we're definitely seeing a lot of interest. He says that his group has doubled its membership to 5,000 from the beginning of this year, and that three times as many people globally visited the group's nonpartisan Vote From Abroad website last month compared to the same time last year. We thought 2016 was a really intense election, but this one obviously is even more interesting and even more crucial to American citizens and voters abroad. It's not just Americans in Germany who are concerned. A survey last year by the Kerber Foundation found 87% of 1,000 Germans interviewed said if Trump is re-elected, it will negatively impact relations between the United States and Germany. And whoever becomes president, he will have a lot of global fence-mending to do. Earlier this year, Andrew Adair, a political advisor in Berlin who is in the business of, quote, explaining Washington to Germany, offered this observation to KCRW Berlin. The bottom line is the U.S. does need Germany more than ever and needs Europe more than ever. And my personal hope is that uh, is recognized more and more in Washington, D.C. What all of this turbulence leading up to the most important election in decades means for the United States and beyond is what I'll be talking about with my guests. In the studio with me are John Emerson, the former U.S. ambassador to Germany who served here during the second term of President Obama, and Catherine Watts, an expert on constitutional law who is the Pendleton Miller Chair in Law at the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. Joining me on the phone are Ralf Freund, who is in Frankfurt and is vice president and spokesman of U.S. Republicans abroad in Germany, as well as Germany's federal transatlantic coordinator, Peter Bayer, who is in Berlin. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Nice to be here. Hi. Thanks for the invitation. Let's dive right in, and I'll start with John. Do you see this U.S. presidential election ending well? 
And will it ease the growing unrest and uncertainty in the United States? Well, I know there's a lot of anxiety, as your you know piece at the top of this segment suggested. I think the reality that normally in an election, we have 25% of Americans vote by mail, and there'll probably be over 60% of Americans voting by mail. And in most vote-by-mail systems, if the ballot is postmarked on or before Election Day, it counts. And often those ballots don't get received until right before Election Day or maybe even after. So it sometimes takes a while to count the ballots. And it's conceivable that, particularly in the swing states that are going to determine this election, if we have uh, a lot of ballots in a very close election that haven't been counted, that we may not know who the president is for a week or two or maybe even longer. And people need to be um, aware of that. But at the end of the day, whether they're court fights, whether we have a Bush v. Gore redo in a sense, and maybe several Bush v. Gores in this election, at the end of the day, we will know who the president is and things will settle down and we'll move on. So I just think it's important to reassure people that regardless of the mess that we might see in the aftermath of Election Day, that we will get through this. Ralph, what do you think? I mean, the president is raising questions about the validity of the vote, especially mail-in ballots, which John was just referring to. If he loses in November, do you think he will accept the outcome and hand over power peacefully? Well, absolutely. Um, think of it, what happened four years ago. He claimed prior to the election, if he wins and you know enters the White House, he'll throw Hillary Clinton into jail. He's never done that. He's never really talked about it afterwards. I don't think it's going to cause any problems. I think this is just like the typical, let's say, campaign scenario from Donald Trump. I, I wish he would be a bit more calm on this topic. I don't think there's going to be any problem. They, they have to count every single vote. It'll take a while maybe a couple of days, but then we're going to have a result and everything's going to be smoothly. Catherine, is there a legal way for Mr. Trump to delay the transition of power? Right now, that's sort of the nuclear question for constitutional law professors that they're all grappling with. This is issue of what happens if President Trump loses the election or it seems loses the election and yet refuses to leave office. The consensus among colleagues that I speak with seems to be that he would have to go. He would in some way be deemed a trespasser and would be escorted from the office. The question, though, remains around who exactly in the government would do that. And we just don't have answers because it's a situation that we haven't faced before and that I would expect that we won't face because, as John was talking about earlier, our voting process, hopefully in the end, will all work out and we will have an answer and we won't get to that nuclear question. Well, what about Mr. Biden? I mean, what if he loses? Could he challenge the outcome of the election? I mean, if there are questions being raised about the validity of the vote? We absolutely could have litigation that involves the legitimacy of the vote. That absolutely is something that we could see. We could have a Bush v. Gore or many Bush v. Gores kind of erupt um, surrounding this election. So that is something that is very much possible. And it also is something that highlights how, you know, John was talking about counting of the votes. That's important, but that's just the first step in our election process. So there's going to be a lot of fights around the counting of the vote. But then once we know the results of the popular vote, all eyes turn to the Electoral College. And there's many what ifs surrounding the Electoral College right now that could lead to more political infighting in Congress with the courts getting involved. We don't know. But again, I hope we won't get to that point, that the vote will be quite decisive and we won't ever have to answer those what ifs that might be fun for con law professors, but not so fun for our country to go through.
the key thing for people to understand is if we do get into or, or the way this may play out in the courts and all that, it will be only if there are swing states that are close enough that it could swing the electoral college, give one or the other 270 votes, and there are more than enough absentee ballots or mail-in ballots that have yet to be counted that could swing that election one way or another. You remember the hanging chads? Mail-in ballots will be this year's version of hanging chads. And that the fight in the courts will be about which ballots get invalidated and which ballots get counted. Yeah, although if we go through it again and it does get to the U.S. Supreme Court, like in Bush versus Gore, we have a, a wrinkle here because right at the moment we're shorthanded on the court. And we'll talk about the Supreme Court in a minute. I do have, I have several questions about that. But first, I want to go to Peta and ask him about how the German government is viewing the devolving scenario across the Atlantic. I mean, is there a chance that Frau Merkel and the government would do to the next U.S. administration what it did to Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus, for example, by refusing to recognize the next American president? <laughs> Now, first of all, we are an interested uh, observer from the other side of the big pond. But of course, uh, for example, if you take me as a transatlantic coordinator of the government, you know, I set my alarm clock uh, in the middle of the night and I watched the live debate and was uh, shocked by what I had to observe and to witness there. But of course, there will not be a situation like the Belarus situation because the United States of America, our you know, closest friend and ally outside of Europe, so I could not possibly imagine a scenario where we would get in any way close to this uh, Belarus situation. And let me ask you also to the law professor something, or one remark with regard to recognizing the validity of the voters' vote in the end. As far as I understand the mechanism, and I might be wrong, that uh, no matter what comes, January 20th is inauguration day. Is that true or not? You were posing that question to Catherine about... Uh, exactly, about the 20th of January inauguration. Yeah, in the end, legally, it does need to be accepted. So the, the million-dollar question is not whether legally it needs to be accepted and, and adhered to, but rather, well, what happens if President Trump were to lose and were to refuse to comply? As a matter of law, the answer should be clear, but how it would actually work out and the mechanics behind it in terms of how the law would be enforced, that's where we just don't have precedent. But you were saying that if, if after January 20th, if somebody remains in the White House who did not win the election, that person technically is a trespasser. trespasser. And, yeah. Exactly. It's just more a question of who in our government would enforce that sort of trespass law against the president. There, there may be some people who would be very enthusiastic about enforcing that. <laughs> but, Ralph, do you envision any scenario, I mean, if you had to sort of gauge uh, the chance or the likelihood of President Trump having to be escorted out of the office <laughs> physically? I can't think of such a scenario. Um, and the professor is right. We never had this situation before, but it's very unlikely this is going to happen. At the same time that there's this debate going on about what happens with the next administration, as it were, there's another contentious event unfolding in Washington. And that's the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, who Mr. Trump wants for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. During the first debate, Mr. Trump said it was his right to fill that seat. I will tell you very simply, we won the election. Elections have consequences. We have the Senate, we have the White House, and we have a phenomenal nominee. Mr. Biden, however, disagreed. The American people have a right to have a say in who the Supreme Court nominee is. And that say occurs when they vote for a United States senators and when they vote for the president of the United States. 
They're not going to get that chance now because we're in the middle of an election already. Tens of thousands of people have already voted. And so the thing that should happen is we should wait. We should wait and see what the outcome of this election is. Catherine, who is right? As a matter of law, what the Constitution tells us is that the president has a right to nominate and then the Senate has a right to decide whether or not to confirm that individual. So that's all that the Constitution tells us. And the rest of it is left up to politics. And those politics we saw play out very vividly in the last year of Obama's presidency when we had a vacancy on the court and President Obama tried to send um, Judge Garland, by all accounts, an extraordinarily qualified jurist up to the highest court. And the Senate refused to consider him, refused to even consider the nomination. And so, you know, the shoe's on the other foot, and we're seeing it play out um, with different political powers at play. May, yeah, I think I the reason something? this is well, so— Okay, so wait, oh, right. let me have John go first, and then <laughs> Ralph can answer. Sorry, okay. okay. Right. I think go the ahead. reason this is so fraught politically is because of the Merrick Garland situation. Justice Scalia died in February of Obama's last year. Mitch McConnell, who was controlling the Senate that time as the Republican leader, still controls the Senate, said, we're not going to consider it because it would be wrong to not let the voters decide and to, in a lame duck or a last year of a presidency to do this. And so now Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies six weeks before the election and Mitch McConnell and pretty much all the Republicans who were in the Senate at that time, with two exceptions, have said, uh, never mind, we're going to do it now. And I agree with Catherine as a matter of law. They perfectly have the right to do it. But as a matter of politics, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on. But that's kind of irrelevant. If members of the Senate are willing to take that political heat, they can get this done. Ralph, what do you think? Is the president right politically to do this? Well, yes, he's right. And also want to say something on um, what Mr. Biden said. Um, he said the election already started. I mean, that's a technical point, not a political issue. If we would um, vote all online on the same day, then we, it wouldn't have started yet. And just because we are sending out all the, um, all the votes already by now through the U.S. Postal Service, it, it, you know, it started, technically speaking, but politically, the final date is 3rd of November, and everything prior to that is within the old administration and within the majority and the formal result in the Senate. Just to be honest, this is a very weak argument from Biden. I perfectly understand that they did argue four years ago differently, the Republican Party, but still, um, they're in power, and he's not elected for three years, um, President Trump claimed. I'm not elected for three and a half years. I'm elected for four years, and if this is within four years, it's very clear and precise they have the right to nominate a new person to the Supreme Court. This is Peter now speaking. It seems like the legal standpoint is clear, entitlement, yes, but you know, it's, it's a question of political culture. How do you behave? Do you really want to do what you're entitled to or you know, finding okay. yourself in the midst of a campaign and then just, uh, just I perfect, shortly I, I, before I perfectly understand. November 3rd of presidential election day. So all this has become, and this is, you know, this is a little bit sad from my perspective, that these so important issues become part of a political game. It should not. Let me ask you the other way around. If it would be like just vice versa, and the Democrats would have the White House and would dominate the Senate, do you think they would wait for the election day? That's what I said. You know, to me as a foreigner, it doesn't matter if the Dems or the Reps. It just shouldn't be part of a political game. I think that highlights something that we haven't touched on relating to the court, but that really concerns me as somebody who studies and writes about the law, 
is what this political hot potato right now, what potential it has for damaging the institutional legitimacy of Mm -hmm. the United States Supreme Court. Really good point. Our three branches of government, right, two of them are designed to be political, the executive branch and our legislative branch, whereas the United States Supreme Court, which sits at the top of our judicial branch, is supposed to be an apolitical body. And the more it gets drawn into these political hot potato fights, the more it seems politically tarnished, and that has potential for real long-term devastating effects. I think that's a really good point. I think it's one reason why you've seen Chief Justice Roberts on some issues like Obamacare, gay rights, siding with the four liberals. Now it's only going to be three of them to get 5-4 votes because in large part I think he is concerned about the politicization of the court. Now if this uh, nomination goes through, and I would fully expect that it will, you're going to have a 6-3 majority of um, conservatives versus liberals, to, which is way too simplistic because it's more nuanced than that. But in any event, and even if Roberts votes with the liberals, it's still a 5-4. So that's one reason this is so hot. And what's really interesting to me is what's the likely impact going to be on the presidential election? Because with Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away and being replaced by Donald Trump's very, very uh, qualified but very, very conservative Judge uh, Amy Barrett, that you may well have a shift in the power of the court that could have an impact on Roe v. Wade, which was the decision that legalized abortion in America, could have an impact on uh, the health care policy. There's a, the Obamacare law comes up to the Supreme Court the week after the election. And of course, as Catherine suggested, could even have an impact on the end result of the uh, presidential campaign itself. Normally, a Supreme Court fight is like rocket fuel for the turnout of the religious right. So you would think, well, that could help Trump. But because this is also something that is going to shift the balance of power on the court, it may well be that there are a lot of moderate women or even women who are Republicans who are very concerned about choice. That could increase turnout or make swing voters go more for Biden. And I think for sure this will have an impact. I honestly don't know which way, but in some of the Senate races that are uh, happening this year that could well result in a change of the Senate power structure from Republicans to Democrats. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will respond to questions from listeners. Stay tuned to Common Ground. Studio Berlin is our current affairs show here on 104.1 FM. Each week we break down the news and take a closer look at the topics that affect our lives here in Germany's capital. Tune in every Wednesday at 10.30 a.m. and Saturday at 10 a.m. here on KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Common Ground on KCRW Berlin. We've been talking about subjects that are dominating headlines in the U.S. and Germany, and those are the U.S. presidential election and Supreme Court nomination. Let's take some listener questions. Hi, my name is Janelle, and I live in the Schmagendorf neighborhood. Why do Supreme Court judges have life appointments? And does this continue to make sense in a country that's changing more rapidly than when the rules were established? Catherine, that's an interesting question. You want to start? Yeah, that's a great question. So the framers of the Constitution 
purposely chose to make our federal judges, including U.S. Supreme Court justices, appointed for life precisely so that they would be insulated from politics. The thought was that if judges issued an opinion that was not politically popular, but yet was consistent with the law, you didn't want those judges to fear for their job security, right, and to potentially interpret the law in a way that it shouldn't be interpreted simply to please the majority of voters. So again, it was designed really to give them independence from politics so that they could try to interpret the law neutrally without fear of losing their job. John, what about you? Do you think it makes sense to have Supreme Court justices for as long as we do, given the changing attitudes in the U.S. population? Yeah, I do, actually. I think the idea of protecting them from politics, you know, I've seen in California, for instance, uh, judges even on the Supreme Court have to stand for re-election every once in a while. And their politics can play into that Um You know, I suppose theoretically a judge could be worried about being reelected. The interesting thing to keep in mind is this. There have been numerous instances where Republican presidents have appointed justices that people thought were going to be very, very conservative and they could change. I mean, Harry Blackman, who wrote that Roe v. Wade decision, was appointed by Richard Nixon. Let's take another listener question. Hi, my name is Michael and I live in Berlin, Mitte. What will happen if the U.S. in a second Trump term decides to leave NATO? Is there anything that could dissuade Trump from his proposal that the U.S. leave NATO? Thanks. So, Peter, I'll have you take the first part of that, and then we'll ask Olaf to talk about the second part. You know, I'm not so much concerned that there will be a cancellation of the membership of NATO by the United States of America. But as we see already, there are changes within NATO's structure. Uh, the latest addition was the announcement of troop reductions. Uh, U.S. troop reductions were stationed in uh, Germany, around 10,000 of them, and add to that number uh, the families and, and so on. That really concerns me. Yes, we have to address changes in global security and, and so on. So NATO in general has to uh, respond to that. But the way it was communicated and done this time uh, by the U.S. administration, by the president. That was something you usually would not expect among very close allies, and I would also say friends. So I'm not concerned that the United States will leave uh, NATO, but I am concerned how this will proceed with a troop reduction. Ralph, what about you? Do you think that President Trump in a second term could leave NATO? I mean, what would it take for him to think more kindly of how Germany is handling its obligations? To answer your question, Soraya, no, I have no fear. I think Trump just wants to put more pressure on his allies that they are fulfilling the papers which they have signed by themselves, that they would contribute 2% of their you know, gross domestic product um, into, into military spending um, and into NATO. And they haven't achieved that so far. They haven't done it. They're failing, and he's putting more pressure on them. There was a professor uh, from University of Koblenz who claimed it would be rather 4 than 5% if the U.S. would leave NATO. I, I just like to jump in on this troop reduction thing. Go ahead, as, John. as Ben Hodges, who is the three-star general who ran USER, U.S. Army Europe, during my time here and has since retired, was quoted extensively as saying, these 35,000 troops in Germany are not here to protect Germany. They're here 
to advance the interests of the United States as they relate to the Middle East, as they relate to North Africa, and of course, as they relate to supporting NATO. And we are involved in moving troops and support and materiel uh, to Poland. We are the framework nation partner of Poland within the uh, NATO agreement. And we have all this infrastructure here. What might make sense is if we were going to redeploy some troops to, say, the South China Sea or to Asia. But that wasn't what was proposed. What's proposed is to move our headquarters from Stuttgart to Brussels or moving troops to Italy. So it really raises a question as to whether this is a political move or something that's truly in the national security interest of the United States. And I will tell you, most of the former military people and many current military people I have spoken with do not think it's necessarily in the national security interest of the United States to just pull these troops out. So I just wanted to put that well, out Well, I think we could achieve the same goals within Germany with with, few, with fewer troops. I don't think 35,000 troops are necessary currently to fulfill the U.S. goals, um, the military goals here in Germany. So we have one more listener question, and we'll play that now. My name is Karen. I live in Selendorf. What does Germany hope to achieve in relation to the next United States ambassador to Germany? Oh, that, that seems to be a question for me, yeah. You know, one thing is for sure, the highest representative of the United States of America here in Germany is a very, very important figure and ally by definition of its position. Uh, Rick Grinnell has been here. He's been different. He is, uh, he's been very tough. He's not here anymore, so the position is vacant. Uh, McGregor has been nominated. I, as I understand, he's in the nomination process. You know, should there be a change in the Oval Office after November 3, I, I don't know if, if we'll ever make it to Berlin. So anybody who comes, not only will we accept that decision by the U.S. president, but uh, everybody is welcome here as the highest representative of the United States of America. And we need uh, this position to be filled and not be vacant for a very long time, because that is also a very important communication channel across the Atlantic. John, um, you were an ambassador, and obviously the next ambassador has a big challenge to do a lot of fence mending, as we heard in the story. What advice would you give to that person who's going to be coming in, whether it's somebody that Mr. Biden appoints or Mr. Trump? Well, first of all, I would hope that whoever comes in will sit down with all of us who have been past ambassadors to Germany, uh, other extraordinary ambassadors like Bob Kimmett, who was my predecessor in chairing the American Council on Germany, and sort of ask that question of all of us, because I think uh, this is what I did, and it, you can help kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. The most important thing is this. The job of ambassador is not just to represent and forcefully advocate for the policy positions of the administration that you are serving. You are representing the entirety of the United States. And you also have an obligation and a responsibility to learn as much as you can about Germany, uh, not just at the government level, but at the business level, at the people-to-people -people level, and communicate that back to the policymakers in Washington so that hopefully policy decisions, particularly those that impact Germany, and we've talked about a few of them here today, are made fully informed with an understanding of how they might play in Germany, how they might impact that relationship. And building trust and communicating are two hugely important components of this job. And really, Germany isn't just Berlin. 
Uh, and it's very important for the ambassador to get out of Berlin. And, and it's sort of like I'd say to an ambassador in Washington, get out of that Washington bubble and get around the United States. Uh, those would be a couple of pieces of advice that I would have. Unfortunately, we're out of time uh, for the show today. And I'd like to thank my guests, former U.S. ambassador to Germany, John Emerson, Germany's transatlantic coordinator, Peter Bayer, Ralf Freund of U.S. Republicans Abroad, and our constitutional expert, Catherine Watts from the University of Washington School of Law. It was a pleasure having all of you on today. Thank, thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much. And for all of you American citizens who live abroad, get your ballots and vote soon because it'll take a while for the mail to get there. And you can drop your ballots off at the embassy or any American consulate here in Germany. Well, thank you for that advice. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Join us next Monday for another episode of Common Ground. You can hear our show on 104.1 FM in Berlin or stream it via the KCRW app or kcrwberlin.com. Common Ground is also available as a podcast, so download it wherever you get yours.